On behalf of Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, formerly Calvary Chapel, Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our pastor and teacher, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study designed to help us grow in the Word. As I observe what is happening in our nation, uh, I don't know about you, but I'm stunned. I'm absolutely stunned by how radically life has changed. I mean, I never could have imagined that we would see the things that we're seeing today. I mean, the insanity and, and the madness uh, we're, we're witnessing is just staggering. And there's only one explanation for it. We are a nation under the judgment of God. And I know a lot of people don't like to hear that, but that is the only explanation for what's going on. We are a nation under the judgment of God, God's judgment of abandonment, to be exact. And this is the most severe level of God's judgment revealed in Scripture, short of the final judgment, which is coming at the end of the age, and then eternal judgment in hell. And one commentator described this judgment of abandonment in this way. It's a form of God's wrath in which he lets go of a society and lets it catapult full speed without restraint in the direction of its own sinful desires and devices and choices. In other words, God's judgment of abandonment is when he allows men to get exactly what they want with no restraint. God lifts his restraining hand and leaves men and nations to the consequences of their own sinful choices. And God could restrain men, but he's so angry with their sin that he lets them go, and the consequences of their, their own sin is the outworking of his wrath that Paul speaks about in Romans chapter 1. And God gives men more rope, so to speak, allowing them to plunge more deeply into sin. I mean, sin itself is a judgment. It's a curse. And so to allow men to drink more deeply from the cup of sin is a judgment. It is the present expression of the wrath of God. It is his judgment of abandonment. And no place in the Scripture more directly addresses this abandonment and its consequences than Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. We're just going to spend a few moments there and get on to what I really want to talk about. But in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, we read, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's the wrath of God, the wrath of God's judgment, His wrath of abandonment. It's being revealed from heaven right now by those who in their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And if there was ever a nation who suppressed the truth and unrighteousness, it would be our nation as well as most of the Western world. We have had the Word of God, the very revelation of God. We have had the gospel proclaimed in this land from before the founding of our republic. But as we all know, God's Word has been opposed and rejected in our nation, and as a result of that, the wrath of God has been revealed. It's revealed against any society, any culture, any people who turn from God, His Word, His commandments, and then suppress that truth in unrighteousness. And that is exactly what our society has done. And Romans chapter 1 defines the wrath of God. It says, this is what it is. When God judges a society for rejecting Him, He gives them up. Another way to describe that phrase would be God abandons them. 
And first of all, Romans chapter 1, verse 24 tells us God gives them up or abandons them to sexual immorality. Verse 24 in Romans chapter 1, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. So the first sign of divine judgment is, is, is that God gives them up in their lusts. In other words, their carnal desires for what is sinful and forbidden. He gives them up, it says, to impurity. And impurity uh, is a moral term that, is, that usually refers to sexual immorality. So Paul says the first sign of divine judgment is that God gives them up to sexual immorality. It's a total rejection of any sense of biblical morality. Are we seeing that today in our nation? And then the next step in this downward spiral is that God gives them up to perverse sexual immorality, namely homosexuality and lesbianism. You know, that is the ultimate sexual expression of man's spiritual degeneracy. Paul speaks about this in Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, where he says, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And he explains it. For their women exchanged natural relations to those who were contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And so when God judges the nation that has rejected his truth, he'll give them up to sexual immorality. He allows them to plunge more deeply into sin. And then homosexuality and, and lesbianism, which we, we've seen for a number of decades now, and it's only getting worse because the flesh is never satisfied. Once you start down that road, that there's no end to it. The next thing will be pedophilia. And after that, it'll be bestiality, and then who knows what? Because the flesh is never satisfied. And then comes the third step. God gives men over to a debased mind. Romans chapter 1, verse 28, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. A debased mind is a mind that becomes spiritually depraved, worthless, and useless, spiritually speaking. It's, it's, a, it's a mind without divine restraint. It's a mind devoid of godly judgment and incapable of understanding, appreciating, or loving the things of God. It's a mind that becomes more and more defective in sin. And not only do they use it to sin, but they can't even think clearly about sin. They can't recognize it. It's a mind that becomes more and more defective in sin. And so this means that their thinking is no longer capable of reasonable thought. It means that they are unable to think rationally or, or logically concerning issues of life. Their mind is rendered incapable of rational thought. And so they make illogical decisions, really insane choices that they would have never made otherwise. I mean, this is the level of divine, this level of divine justice causes them to sink even deeper and deeper into sin. And a debased mind produces all kinds of evils, all kinds of evils. I mean, it can do nothing except those things, Paul says, which ought not to be done. In other words, things that are absolutely unfitting and improper. And in Romans chapter 1, verses 29 to 32, Paul gives an entire list of antisocial practices which ought not to be done, things which together describe the breakdown of human community as, as standards disappear and society disintegrates. 
It's the longest list of vices or sins found anywhere in the Bible. It it is a list of all kinds of wickedness and sin that will literally flood and, and drown a society. But it's not an exhaustive list. Rather, it's, it's representative of the virtually endless number of sins the natural man is filled with. Really, it's just a summary of a godless people. It, it's representative of the total collapse of a society. Merely the, the tip of the iceberg of a society that is abandoned by God. And the more God gives people up to their own unrestrained depravity, the more society will be marked by these sins in a greater and greater measure. And all of these things are are part and parcel of what happens to a culture when God lets them go, when God gives them up. They go into an insanity where nothing makes sense. And loved ones, that is exactly where we are as a nation. In this passage, more than any other explains what is happening in our country. The, the moral chaos, confusion, and collapse. The, the insanity and the madness we're experiencing in our nation at this very moment. It is God's judgment. And there is no doubt God has abandoned America and that we are reaping the consequences of this as we continue in this downward spiral toward destruction. And it's only going to get worse and worse. Paul said, evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. I mean, we're a nation under the judgment of God, and we need to understand that. And we need to come to grips with the fact that it's not going to get better. I mean, of course, as believers, we know from the truth of God's Word that we are saved from the wrath to come, and that we are safe and secure in Christ Jesus. But what are we supposed to do? You know, what's the answer? Well, the answer is not political. I mean, and if you've been here for very long, you know by that I do not mean that we should uh, not be informed and exercise our right to vote and and be good stewards of our citizenship. I don't mean that at all. I'm just saying that the the problem is not going to be solved politically because it's not a political problem. And so a new governor or a new administration in Washington, D.C. would at very best provide only temporary benefits, but it will never change the overall course of our nation. And so it's absolutely foolish to think that we can do anything in the human realm to stop the divine judgment of God. That's not possible. Well, then what do we do? Well, Paul gave us the answer in Romans chapter 1. When he said in verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You see, loved ones, the only answer for what's going on in our our country is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The only hope for man. The only hope for our nation and the world is for men and women to have their hearts transformed by coming to faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. That is our only hope. And so our responsibility as a church and our responsibility as individual believers is to not be ashamed of the gospel, but rather to preach the gospel and to share the gospel, to live the gospel. But what is the gospel? And this is what I want to talk about this morning. And I've talked about this over the years. Uh, I talked about this probably a year or two ago. 
And so some of this is going to be a repeat for some of you, but not all of it. What is the gospel? Because I am absolutely convinced that many professed Christians today don't know what the gospel is. Because the so-called gospel they believed isn't the gospel at all, but a counterfeit, a cheap imitation and counterfeit. I mean, tragically, there is a great discrepancy between what the Bible says and what is often presented as the gospel today. And I'm afraid that many professed Christians today would present something that is far short of what the Bible holds out as the gospel. You see, what we're talking about here this morning, loved ones, is of eternal significance. Eternal significance. Because that lost loved one, or friend, or neighbor, or uh, associate, they're not just lost. They are that. They don't even know it. But worse than that, they are on their way to an eternal hell. So to say that they're lost is putting it mildly. And the only answer is the gospel. And so this is of eternal significance. Every Christian should be able to articulate the the content of the gospel because the gospel is at the very heart of Christianity. It, it, It is what we stake our very lives and eternity upon. You get the gospel wrong and you get everything else wrong. So what is the gospel? Well, first of all, I think it's good if we define the word gospel. The word gospel literally means good news. And it occurs 93 times in the Bible, exclusively in the New Testament. In Greek, it's the the word evangelion, from which we get our English words evangelist, evangel, and evangelical. In the very broadest sense of the word, The gospel is the whole of Scripture. But in a narrow sense, and in the sense we're talking about it this morning, and in the sense in which Paul is talking about it, the gospel is the good news from heaven concerning Christ and the way of salvation. And there are things announced in this good news about God, about man, about Jesus, and about the response we must all make to this news. But the key to understanding the gospel is to know why it's good news. And to do that, we must start with the bad news. Because the bad news tells us exactly why we need a Savior. And we'll get to the bad news in just a moment. But anytime we talk about the gospel, we must begin first of all with God. Because the gospel always begins with God. And if in sharing the gospel you begin with man or man's problems, you're starting at the wrong place. The gospel always begins with God. I mean, Paul speaks of the gospel in Romans chapter 1, verse 1, as the gospel of God. Why did he say that? Because it originated with God. God is the source of the gospel. The gospel is the power of God. And so the gospel always begins with God and not man. And what is announced to us in the gospel is that there is a God. And He is the only God. 
and there is none like him. And he is holy and and righteous and just. He is infinite, all-powerful, all-wise, present everywhere, and he is the creator of all things. God created the world, and he created man. We are his creatures, and therefore we are owned by him and accountable to him. As our creator, he has the right to tell us what he expects from us. God created us in his image to live in relationship with Him, to have fellowship and communion with Him, to worship, love, honor, and adore Him, and to serve Him and and glorify Him. That's why we we were created. And so God is our holy Creator. He is also our righteous judge. And in His holiness and righteousness, God is actually angry with man. I mean, the Bible says God is angry with the wicked every day. And so in His holiness and righteousness, God is angry with man. You say, well, why is that? Well, the Gospel has something to say about man now. And it's not good. In fact, it is bad news. And the bad news begins with man, specifically with Adam. God put Adam, the first man in the garden, to keep the garden, and he gave Adam one command, which he was to perfectly and perpetually obey. And God promised, or one prohibition, I guess I should say. And God promised that if he obeyed that, uh, he would, he, God promised life. And if he didn't, God promised him death. And you know the story. Adam willfully disobeyed God's command. He ate, he sinned. And when he did, sin and death came into the world. Speaking of Adam, Paul said, through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men. In other words, Adam's sinful nature has been passed down to all of humanity. We have all, every one of us, inherited Adam's sin nature. And the Bible makes it abundantly clear that all people are sinners. Paul said in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we are all sinners. We are sinners by nature because we inherited Adam's sin nature. And so we're sinners from birth in that regard. And then we are also sinners by conduct. We sin. So you see, we're not sinners because we sin. Rather, we sin because we are sinners by nature. And that's the bad news. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short <clears throat> Excuse me, of what God requires to get into heaven. Thus, we're alienated from a holy God because of our sin. And this alienation from God prevents every sinner from having fellowship with God who is too perfectly holy to have anything to do with sinners except to reject them and to punish them forever. This is the dire predicament of every human being. Every man and woman, apart from Christ, every unbelieving man and woman stands guilty and condemned before a holy and righteous God. They're like people on dead row, they're just, or death row. They're just waiting for the execution of their sentence because they are guilty and condemned before a holy and righteous God. 
And the fact that we are all sinners is a huge problem. And to make the problem even worse, according to Paul in Romans chapter 1, men reject God. Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 21, Paul talks about all men, he says that all men know there is a God through creation by observing what God has made. His invisible attributes are seen through creation. So all men understand that we have a creator, but we've all sinfully handed that information. Paul says in our unrighteousness, we, we, men have suppressed the truth about God. In other words, we, we hold it down, trying not to let it affect us. And one of the ways men do that is, is in attempting to replace the creator. According to Paul in Romans 1.25, sinful man will Worship, in other words, he'll give his love, affection, time, effort, and resources to anything and everything other than the true and the living God. <clears throat> Paul says in Romans 1.21, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. Literally, it means they did not glorify him or give thanks to him. So although men know and are conscious of God's existence and power, Although they know He is a transcendent, all-powerful, infinitely greater than themselves, instead of responding appropriately to that knowledge by glorifying and giving thanks to God, they reject and suppress that knowledge. And they refuse to glorify God as God. They refuse to recognize Him as the author of all good who should be thanked and worshipped. And that is the, the fundamental problem with the human race. That's our, our wickedness and our great rebellion against God. Whether it's suppressing the truth about God, worshiping something other than God, or refusing to honor Him as God and give Him thanks, unbelieving man rejects the true and the living God. In fact, Paul says unbelievers don't even want God in their knowledge. In Romans 1 verse 28, he says they did not see fit to acknowledge God. Literally, they did not approve of having God in their knowledge. I mean, Christ is the truth. But men don't want Him in their knowledge, so they suppress this truth. And they will exchange it. They will distort it. They will hide it. They will run from it. In fact, in Romans chapter 8, verse 7, Paul said, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And the word hostile means enemy. A person who hates another and wishes him injury. It, it speaks of a state of enmity or, or active hostility and opposition. And so contrary to how most non-Christians want to portray themselves, they're not neutral about religious matters. They're not indifferent about God or apathetic when it comes to the claims of Christ. And they may speak publicly of a, of a supreme being in, in whose existence they believe. But when it comes to the truth of the gospel, when it comes to the, the one true God of holiness, justice, and, and absolute supremacy, when it comes to the truth of the gospel, anger, rebellion, and hostility dominates their hearts. They refuse to submit to God. Refuse to recognize him. Their attitude is that of the, the scribes and Pharisees who said, we will not have this man rule over us. 
Unbelievers are not only alienated from God, refusing to acknowledge and worship God, they're also hateful toward God by attitude. They hate him and, and resent his holy standards and commands. How widespread is this human condition? It's true for every human being who has ever lived. Paul said in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 12, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless, so no one does good, not even one. And then down a few verses later, he says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. In 1 Kings 8.46, we read, there is no man who does not sin. So this is bad news, but the bad news actually gets worse. You see, what makes it worse is that from the human standpoint, there's absolutely nothing we can do to change our sinful nature. I mean, sinful man doesn't want to change his nature. And the Bible says men love the darkness. In other words, they love their sin. And they hate God, but even if, if he wanted to, there's nothing man can do in and of himself to change his nature. There's nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to make ourselves acceptable to God, to be worthy in his sight or to satisfy his just and holy wrath. Good works will not make us right with God. The Bible says that all our righteous deeds or, or all of our good works or like a polluted garment, or like filthy rags. Religious rituals or ceremonies will never make a man right with God. I mean, an entire lifetime of doing good things and, and performing religious rituals cannot atone for one single sin. I mean, sin affects us to the very core of our being. We have a corrupt nature, a sinful nature within, and and, and we cannot change our nature. Just as the prophet Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 13.23, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard its spots? Then may you also do good who are accustomed to do evil. You say, well, I don't do evil. In God's eyes, you do. The mere fact that you don't love God with your heart heart, soul, mind, and strength, in other words, with your entire being, is evil. Proverbs 20, verse 9, who can say I have made my heart clean? I am pure from my sin. Well, it's a rhetorical question. No one can say that. Because sinners are, are powerless and, and helpless to change themselves. Now, certainly a, a man... Uh, may change when it comes to his outward conduct. I mean, unsaved men have the ability to stop you know, bad habits, to stop addictions and, and other bad behavior. That's, that's perfectly within the realm of, of the natural man's abilities. So there can be outward reformation in someone's life. But a man can never change his sinful nature. And he can never do anything that will atone for one single sin. And just one sin, loved ones, just one sin, just one sin violating the law of God is enough to condemn a sinner. 
And that means the first sin the sinner ever commits is enough to condemn him to hell for eternity. In Galatians 3, Paul says, everyone who fails to keep the law of God perfectly is cursed and worthy of divine judgment and condemnation. And so the law, and this was the purpose of the law, has left the whole world guilty before God. And man can never make himself right with God. This is bad news. In fact, it doesn't get any worse. From birth, we're all headed toward judgment because we're sinners by nature and by conduct and therefore deserving of nothing but God's judgment and wrath. You see, this is the condition of man apart from God. He's lost. He's guilty. And he doesn't even know that he is facing the righteous condemnation and judgment of a holy God. I mean, Every unsaved man and woman is standing on the very precipice of hell. Do you realize that? They're just one heartbeat away. One breath away. One broken blood vessel away from eternity where where they will face God as their righteous judge and be cast into the fires of eternal hell where they will suffer the torments of God's furious wrath in the place, Jesus said, of wailing and weeping and gnashing of teeth. The place where the worm dies not, Jesus said, where they will always be dying but never able to die, where the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. In other words, it's eternal torment. And think of this. And after they've been there for a million ages, not a million years, but a million ages, after they've been there a million ages, they will never be any closer to getting out than the day they first went in. And this is what is awaiting all of those who die apart from Christ in their sins. So brothers and sisters, you see the seriousness of what we're dealing with here? I mean, this is a matter of of life and death. Life and death. And so we dare not trivialize the Gospel. We dare not get the Gospel wrong. Because the eternal state of men and women and boys and girls is what's at stake. I mean, nothing less. Eternity hangs in the balance. I mean, this is, this is the bad news. It, it's, it's a frightening message. But until you understand the bad news, you will never truly understand nor appreciate the good news. You see, the bad news is what makes the gospel so sweet. The bad news is what makes the gospel so glorious and so incredibly amazing. And what is this good news? Well, the good news is that God is not only our holy, righteous, just creator and judge, 
But he is also loving and merciful, gracious, kind, and long-suffering. And God so loved the world, not because of anything in man, but because of his great love. So God, because of his great love, he so loved the world that he devised a means by which man can be saved from his holy wrath against sinners. You see, something we must never, ever forget is that God is by nature a Savior. And He loves man. And He weeps over the plight of man. And that's why God, through the eyes of Jeremiah the prophet, wept for His people saying, Why? Why will you die? It's why Jesus wept over Jerusalem saying, Why will you not come to Me that you might have God, through the prophet Ezekiel, said to his people, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God? And not rather that he should turn from his way and live? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn, turn and live. That's the heart of God. And we have a God who is by nature a Savior. And you don't have to worry about whether God will receive and save the sinner. He's a Savior by nature. I mean, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. God, our Savior, as Paul said in 1 Timothy, desires all men to be saved and to come to the full knowledge of the truth. Of course, we all know that this does not mean that everyone is going to be saved. And the Bible makes it abundantly clear that that all people are not going to be saved, that there will be many who will be cast into hell. But it does mean that God desires that all races, Jew, Gentile, every tribe, tongue, and nation, and all economic and social classes trust in Christ. And that the gospel is to be proclaimed to all people everywhere. I mean, Jesus issued a gracious invitation to all men when he said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. I mean, God has offered a gracious gospel invitation to all people everywhere. In Isaiah 45.22, he says through the prophet, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Turn to me, he says, and be saved. So Christ and, and God give a gracious invitation to all people to come. But the gospel is not only a gracious invitation, it is also a command to be obeyed. In Acts 17.30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. You see, the point is simply that God is by nature a saving God. He is a God who loves sinners and has Himself, because of His great love, devised the way in which man can be saved. Isn't that incredible? But how can a man be saved? How can a man be saved? Because the only possible way a sinner can be saved and reconciled to God is if God does not hold them accountable for their sin. The sinner must have his sins forgiven. And that's the very heart of the doctrine of justification. You know, God forgives sin. But how can God forgive the sinner's sin? Because God is holy and just. 
And His justice demands that He punish all sin. And so how can God forgive the sinner and still be just? If God must punish all sin, and He must, His holy nature and His justice absolutely demand it, then how can God not hold them guilty for what they are guilty of? How can God not hold the sinner guilty for his sin? How can God satisfy his just and holy condemnation of sin with the full and deserved punishment that doesn't destroy the sinner forever? How can God do that? The answer to that is the heart and soul of the Gospel. I mean, you understand this, and you will understand the Gospel, and you will be among the ever-decreasing number of people in the church today who do. If God is going to save sinners, the only way He can do so is to deal with their sin. So what is He going to do with their sin? I mean, it has to be dealt with. I mean, sinners... Sin must be punished. So sinners must be punished for their sin. God can't overlook sin. All sin must and will be punished. But if God punishes the sinner's sin, they'll be condemned to hell forever. So what could God do? What could He do? The answer? Someone has got to be punished for all that sin, right? And of course, someone was. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Here is the doctrine of salvation. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Man, what an incredible verse. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Here's what we read. And if you're visiting with us today or watching online, wondering which version of the Bible I use, I'm using the ESV. And so 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, this is what the ESV says. For our sake, He... Now, who's that speaking of? For our sake, He, speaking of God. God the Father. For our sake, He, God the Father made him, who's that? Jesus. So God made him, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. For our sake, God made him, Jesus, who Hebrews says is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. So God made Jesus, who was perfect, holy, and sinless, to be sin. God made him who knew no sin, to be sin. Well, that's an incredible statement. In what sense was Jesus made to be sin? And I ask that question because many of the health and and prosperity preachers like Kenneth Copeland and, and others just like him. And you don't have to take my word for it. It's in their books and sermons and so forth. I wouldn't encourage you to ever read any of them. If you have them, throw them away. But Copeland and others like him will tell you that on the cross, Jesus became a sinner. 
And God had to punish him for those sins, and he died under the weight of sin, and then he had to go to hell and suffer for three days until his sins were paid for, after which he was allowed to be born again. And that is not only absolutely unbiblical, it is absolutely blasphemous. Because on the cross, Jesus was not a sinner. He never sinned. If he sinned, he couldn't be the perfect sinless sacrifice. Jesus was not a sinner. He was a lamb without spot or blemish. He was no more a sinner hanging on the cross than he was in all eternity before and since. He was still holy, innocent, unstained, and separated from sinners. He was not a sinner on the cross. He was guilty of absolutely nothing. He was as pure hanging on the cross as he, as he, ever, is in all etern- or as he ever in all eternity is. So in what sense then was Jesus made sin? Well, we don't have to wonder. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. In Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 through 6, describe the only sense in which Jesus could have been made sin. Let me read those verses to you. Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Here's the point. On the cross, God treated Jesus as if He had personally committed every sin ever committed by every person who would ever be saved, though in fact He committed none of them. That is the doctrine of substitution. You have the innocent dying for the guilty, the the godly dying for the ungodly, the righteous dying for the unrighteous. Jesus had not committed any sins. He never sinned. He was without sin. But God treated him as if he had committed all the sins of all who would ever believe. God laid the iniquity of us all on him. He placed all of our sin upon Christ. And that caused God the Father to pour out his furious holy wrath and punishment on Jesus against those sins against our sins. In other words, we could say it this way. Easier to remember. God punished Jesus on the cross as if He had lived my sinful life and your sinful life. And just think of all of the sin in your life. Just think of that mountain range of sin that you have accumulated and I have accumulated. Just think of all of the sin throughout your entire life. All the sin in just the last few days and weeks, even in the last few hours, even since you arrived here. All that sin. And God placed all of that sin upon Jesus. And then on the cross, He treated Jesus as if He had committed all those sins. Though in fact, He did not. That's substitution. 
That's why his death upon the cross is called a substitutionary atoning death. But there's even more. That's only half of the equation. Look at the last part of verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, and here it is, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I mean, this is the other side of substitution, and this is just an absolutely incredible truth. And we can explain it this way. You know, Jesus lived on this earth for 33 years. And we don't know anything about the first 30 years. We, we know about the, uh, his three years. Well, the only thing we do know about the first 30 years was when he was left behind at the temple at 12 years old. But beyond that, uh, the only thing we know is that he, the Bible says he grew in wisdom, stature, and favor with God and man. But beyond that, that's all we know about the first 30 years. We know about the second three, or the last three years. But of course, that was nothing but greed. So why all that grief? Because conceivably, instead of living 33 years on the earth, conceivably Jesus could have come down Friday morning, died Friday afternoon, been buried, resurrected Sunday, and then gone back to heaven. So what are the 33 years all about? But do you remember when Jesus went to be baptized? He went to John the Baptist, and John said, no, not doing that. You need to baptize me. I don't need to baptize you. And Jesus said to John, no, we must do this, because he said, I must fulfill all righteousness. You say, okay, what's the point? The reason Jesus had to live those 33 years on earth is that he had to live a perfect sinless life. So that perfect sinless life could then be credited to our account. On the cross, God treated Jesus as if he had lived my sinful life so that he could treat me as if I had lived Jesus' perfect sinless life. Think about that. My sins were placed on Jesus' account And then his perfect sinless life is credited to my account. And so when God looks down on those who are believers, what does he see? He sees the perfect sinless life of Christ. And he says, Jim Jarrett lived a perfect sinless life, though in fact, I have not. And I cannot. But Jesus did. And when we're born again, we are, we are clothed in His perfect righteousness. That's the only way we're acceptable to God, in the Beloved, in Christ's righteousness. So when God looks at us, He sees us as, as perfectly righteous. He looks at us as if we have lived a perfect, sinless life. That's grace. And that's the doctrine of substitution, both sides. Jesus Christ was punished for our sins, and we are treated as if we lived his perfect sinless life. And that's incomprehensible. It's it's beyond words, really. Think about it. Think about what that means. It means that we are are now treated by God as if we are perfectly righteous in, in every way, in every relationship. 
as if we are perfectly righteous in every word, every thought, every deed, and every motive. When God the Father looks at us, He sees us as perfectly righteous in Christ. Loved ones, that is grace. That is grace. And this is the gospel. I mean, this, this is the good news about what God has done for man in and through the finished work of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, what is the gospel very simply? I mean, how would we perhaps present this to someone because the doctrine of substitution, I mean, that's for our knowledge, but that's not something that you would present to someone as you're trying to share the gospel with them. And that's for our knowledge, for our building up, for our encouragement, so we'll know the, the underpinnings of the gospel, the implications of the gospel. But as far as the gospel, how would we present that? Well, we could present the gospel in this way. And remember, it starts with God. So we could tell someone, you know, God is our holy creator and our righteous judge. And he created man to be in fellowship with him, to love him and to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. But man has rebelled against God by sinning against his holy law and by sinning against his character. And we have all sinned. The Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We've all sinned against God. And beyond that, we're all sinners by nature and by conduct. And as a result of our sin, we're alienated from God and we stand guilty and condemned before Him as our righteous judge, deserving of nothing but death, spiritual separation from God and punishment forever if we die in our sin. That's the bad news. But the good news is that God is not only our holy creator and righteous judge, He is also loving, merciful, gracious, and kind. He is by nature a Savior. And because of His great love, He has prepared a way by which we can have our sins forgiven and be granted eternal life and fellowship with Him. And there, there is only one way, and that way is through His Son, Jesus Christ. And God, because of His great love, sent His only Son into the world, and Jesus became a man, and He was fully God and fully man. And He lived a perfectly holy, sinless life, the life that you and I could never live. And then after being accused of crimes that he did not commit, he was sentenced to death by crucifixion. And as he was on the cross, God poured out his holy, furious wrath and punishment against sin upon the Lord Jesus. And he died the death that you and I deserve for our sin. On the cross, God punished Jesus as if he had lived your sinful life. And Jesus died. The wages of sin is death. Jesus died. He really died. And His death satisfied the demands of God's justice against sinners. Jesus died and He was buried. And three days later, He rose from the dead. Proof positive that God has accepted His sacrifice. He rose for our justification. And he was, he was here on the earth for 40 days. And after that, he ascended back to heaven where he is today, seated at the right hand of the Father, ever making intercession for all of those who belong to him. And he's coming again for, for those who belong to him. And so the way to be reconciled to a holy God has been made. The way of salvation made wide open, and God is offering salvation as a free gift of His grace to any and all who will come to Him. That's the Gospel. That's the Gospel. It begins with God, talks about man, and then what, what Christ has done for man. And then there's a third or fourth component to the Gospel, and that's the, re the response. It's not the Gospel. The response is not part of the Gospel. 
but it's the only saving response to the gospel. And the only saving response to this good news is what the Bible says. Well, what does the Bible say? The Bible says you must repent and believe. Repent and believe. And to repent means a change of mind that results in a change of direction. It's to turn and go the opposite direction you've been going. So it means that you turn to God from the sinful life that you're living now. So you repent, you turn, and then you must believe. And the word believe carries the idea of trusting in, clinging to, relying upon. So you must turn to God from your old sinful life and believe in, trust in, rely upon the Lord Jesus Christ and His finished work as your only hope of salvation. And when you turn to God and trust in Christ alone, your sin is placed on Christ's account and it's marked paid in full and His perfect righteousness is credited to your account. And when this transaction takes place, a miracle happens. You're, you're forgiven of your sin. You're cleansed. You're washed. You're made a new creation in Christ. You're joined together with Christ. And all of the benefits of Christ become yours through faith. And then you have the promise of everlasting life and everlasting fellowship with God and the joy of basking in His love and His glory for all eternity. That's the good news. And so the appeal that God is making through me, to you right now, to anyone here this morning who, who is not a Christian. The appeal that God is making through me to you, if you haven't yet trusted Christ alone for his salvation, is that you would hear this message, understand it, and then call upon the name of the Lord that you might be saved. Because the Bible says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that is our loving hope and prayer for you this morning. And I pray that if you've never trusted in Christ alone, you'll, you will not leave here today without discovering more of, of what it means to trust in Christ and to follow Him. And at the end of the service, after our, our, our time of communion, through this door to my left, your right, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a prayer room and there'll be a couple of our elders and their wives there. So if you have any questions about what we've talked about this morning, if you have any questions about what it is to trust in Christ alone for salvation, if you're not sure of your salvation or if you, you desire to trust in Christ, please go. And they would love to speak with you and, and pray with you. And if you don't have a Bible, we'll give you a Bible and, and give you information that will help you. So please take advantage of that. Don't leave here today without finding out more of what it is to, to trust Christ and to follow Him. Because that's your only hope, to be saved from the wrath that is to come. And so, loved ones, believers, let me encourage you this morning. Do not be ashamed of the Gospel. Do not underestimate the gospel. Do not lose confidence in the gospel. Do not compromise the gospel. Don't water it down. Don't dilute it to try to make it more palatable and acceptable to the world. The Bible tells us the cross is foolishness. 
It's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us, the message of the cross is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel and the, and the, uh, the, the message of the cross is always going to be an offense to the unbeliever. But we cannot water it down. We cannot dilute it. We cannot compromise it in any way because it is the power of God unto salvation. And it's man's only hope. The gospel is sufficient for man's salvation, his sanctification, and his glorification. It is sufficient for the entire Christian experience. And may we ever and always be faithful to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. On behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, formerly Calvary Chapel Reading, we hope and pray this study will help you continue growing in the Word. If you've been blessed by today's message, or if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Give us a call at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the church website at calvarybiblepc.org. Thank you for listening, and may God richly bless you. It's your love.